0: If you're staying in the room, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. As was just read, we'll be walking through this passage on this Palm Sunday as we remember and commemorate Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and consider its significance. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Palm Sunday, if, if you're unfamiliar It is the day on the liturgical calendar in which we do signify and we do remember what is known as the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. Now, Palm Sunday was the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time before his death. And, and what we see, if, you're, if you are reading through any of the Gospels, we, we're in Matthew's Gospel, if you're reading through Matthew and you come to this place, what you notice is there's no turning back for Jesus once he enters the city of Jerusalem. Matthew 21 inevitably leads to Matthew 26 and Matthew 27 where Jesus is crucified. And by coming into Jerusalem, Jesus is showing us That he is fully committed to the eternal plan of God to save sinners through his death. So this day is really significant. However, Palm Sunday is a day that is full of apparent paradoxes. Apparent paradoxes all over this passage, all in this scene. Now, a paradox, if you're unfamiliar with that, it's, it's, all it is is it's a statement. It's, it's, it's a logical um, um, element. It's a literary element. Um, but it's a statement that contradicts itself. It's something that uh, has to be both true and untrue at the same time. So, for instance, you know, if you've ever found yourself saying something like this, nobody goes to Harvey's for lunch on Sundays. Because it's so crowded, right? Nobody goes there because it's so crowded. Like, both of those things are true at once. Like, man, I don't know anybody that goes to Harvey's. And the reason is because you can't get a table. Everybody's there. Nobody's there and everybody's there. It's, it's just kind of a fun little thing that happens with logic and with, uh, in literature, you'll see it all over the place. Now, when I use the word uh, paradox here, I'm referring to it a little more loosely. Just a little more loosely. Um, in the looser sense... A paradox can be a person, it can be a situation, it can be a thing that combines two things that are seemingly contradictory. So for example, is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem glorious or is it humble? Both. Did Jesus come to Jerusalem to rescue his people, to set them free, to deliver them? Or did he come to Jerusalem to be executed as an enemy of the state? Both. What about the crowd? Is the crowd's praise of Jesus appropriate? Or is it inappropriate? Both. Depending on your vantage point in the story, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem may feel lowly and meek, or it may feel triumphant and victorious. To fully appreciate what happened on this day over 2,000 years ago, we need to examine the paradoxes of this story. Doing so will leave us completely awestruck by the beauty and complexity and simplicity of Jesus and his reason for being in the city gates of Jerusalem on his way to a Roman cross. What's clear in this passage is that Jesus has come to Jerusalem as a king. He has come as a king. The question is, what kind of king is he? And what does this particular type of kingship mean for you and me? We're going to discover these things by examining three paradoxes. If you have notes... Uh, uh, they'll be listed there if that helps you in some way. I will remind you, I would much rather you have a copy of God's Word open than have my notes open. So uh, the, uh, what we want to get into your hearts are not is not my take on this passage, but the Word of God itself. However, if the notes are helpful to you, we'll be walking through three paradoxes in this passage. And the first one is the paradoxical presence of the king. And the second is the paradoxical purpose of the king. And then finally, as a good Baptist... The paradoxical praise of the crowds. So there we go. Hopefully that's helpful for you. Let's consider them one by one first. The paradoxical presence of the king. The first paradox that we encounter in Matthew 21 has to do with who Jesus is. If you read this passage honestly and you, and, you, know, you don't just kind of gloss over it because you're familiar with the story, it, it depends on how you look at it what you would say about who Jesus is, his identity. Matthew presents Jesus as a king who is both humble and glorious, both meek and majestic, both lowly and authoritative. Now first, Matthew shows us that Jesus entered Jerusalem in humility on the back of a donkey, fulfilling ancient prophecy. Let's look at the text, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives... Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you'll say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And now here's Matthew's comment. He says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. How humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Okay, so Jesus tells his disciples to go fetch him a donkey so that he can ride into the city of Jerusalem. A donkey, a donkey. Don't, don't like, just a donkey. Not a war horse, okay? Not something impressive, a, a donkey. So he's like, go and just find some ordinary stable somewhere, just grab a donkey, bring it to me, and I want to ride it into the city. It's modest. It's a little underwhelming. Behold, your king is coming to you on a donkey. It's, it's almost uh, unbecoming of, of a king, especially what we know of Jesus. Kings typically... Don't ride donkeys, especially at this time. And even more than that, Jesus is coming to rescue his people. He he is going into battle. And he has chosen for a steed, a donkey. You see, uh, when Muhammad rode into Mecca, he was on the back of a strong, impressive horse that had been specifically trained for war. And he was joined by warriors And they conquered the city with might and with strength and by the shedding of blood. And here's Jesus, a warrior king who has come to to conquer and rescue and save and deliver, plodding along on a donkey. A band of misfit disciples at his side, met with a wild array of Jewish pilgrims who have made their way into the city for Passover, just shouting and and rejoicing alongside him. By riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus demonstrated that he is a different kind of king altogether. He is a king marked by humility. And and Matthew wanted to make sure we didn't miss it. He he makes a comment here. He wants us to see that Jesus' actions at this moment in history, was a fulfillment of ancient prophecy. He quotes Zechariah 9.9. It's 9. always we read it at the beginning of the service. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus is the humble king. He doesn't arrive at the city gates to overthrow. He doesn't arrive to take his throne in pomp and splendor. He was not the king the people of Israel expected. He was not the king the people of Israel even wanted, but he's exactly the kind of king that they needed. They wanted a conqueror who would immediately liberate them from the grip of the Roman Empire. They needed a king who would draw near to them and serve them. This is what we learn about Jesus in the way that he entered this city. He is not a distant and disconnected king. Jesus as your king is not a king who you have no access to. He is intimately involved with his people. Jesus is a king who can sympathize with our weakness, though he himself was sinless. Jesus is a king who knows what it's like to suffer. What king suffers? Jesus does. Jesus is a king who truly knows us. And cares to know us. And deeply loves us. In his kingship, Jesus did not come first to recruit servants to do his bidding. But instead, he has come to serve. in giving his life as a ransom. Jesus is the humble king. And that means that he stoops low. And maybe this morning you feel like you're in a low place. Whether it's emotionally, spiritually, just your life circumstances, you feel like you're in the gutter. You're you're, you're in a very low place. And you feel like you have to, you know, get yourself together before you can really take your faith seriously or or deepen your relationship with the Lord. When in reality, it is in the gutter, which is why the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, throughout their writings emphasize the benefit of suffering and how it draws you near to the Lord. Why? Because that's where he comes. He is a king of humility who stoops low in the depths of your sorrow in the depths of your sin because Jesus is a humble king he goes deeper and when you find yourself in the pit when you find yourself at the point of despair and you feel like there's no you're at rock bottom Jesus is there with you because he is a king of lowliness Jesus is the humble king But this is where the paradox comes into play in the story. Matthew doesn't just show us that Jesus is a king of humility. He also shows us that Jesus entered Jerusalem in glory on the back of a donkey, following not ancient prophecy, but an ancient pattern. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at the same verses again. We're going to read them again, and we're going to change our vantage point. We're going to look at them a little bit differently now. Okay, so now... this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal, a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. By riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, we're going to see here that Jesus is also demonstrating that he is the true Davidic king. Now notice this, different vantage point. Jesus is not slipping into Jerusalem. He knows what's awaiting him. He knows that the the whole city is in a frenzy and it's only going to get worse. And he doesn't sneak into the city. He boldly walks in. And he intentionally orchestrates every event so that the message is abundantly clear. Your king is here. So first, Jesus tells his disciples to go into a village and commandeer a donkey. Do you understand what's happening here? Like we focus on the, the humility side of it so much, we don't, we don't get, you know, we got to switch positions, see it from a different angle. The man told his disciples to go take a donkey from someone. Like it was nothing. Just, hey, go into that village and you're going to see a donkey there. Take it. And if anybody tries to stop you, you know, I mean, the audacity, who would stop them? It'd be like somebody coming to your house and, and being like, hey, I'm going to borrow your car for a few minutes, okay? And you just, they just like hop in and start driving off. Like, Oh, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? Oh, it's okay. My boss needs it. My boss said that he needs your car, you know? That's, that's the equivalent of what's going on here. They're taking this donkey. And Jesus says, if that happens and they have questions, tell them the Lord has use of it. The Lord needs it. He's making a claim to his universal lordship. Do you see it here? Jesus is able to just casually tell them to go and take a donkey and bring it to him and not be concerned. Like, man, are you stealing Jesus? Like, you know, we can't just steal donkeys over here. Why is he not stealing the donkey? It belongs to Jesus. Because he owns everything. That's what we see in this passage from a different vantage point. Jesus is the universal lord of heaven and earth. He owns everything from the galaxies he created to the donkeys that are in the next village. And so he demands its use because he has a right to. But second, again, different vantage point. Jesus wants to ride a donkey into Jerusalem. Why? It's not just to fulfill Zechariah 9.9 to show his humility. It's also to fulfill... An ancient pattern that we see stretching back all the way to the days of King David. And we can't allow our familiarity with the story to cloud our vision here. Why does Jesus want to ride a donkey into Jerusalem? Why is that necessary? He didn't need it. You know, it's not like all of a sudden his legs quit working. He wanted to make a statement by riding into the city on the back of a donkey. And it wasn't just, look how humble I am. You see, back in 1 Kings chapter 1, there's, there's a story of another king who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, toward the end of, of King David's life, the time had come for a new king to take his place. He's, he's old, he's, he's going to die soon. And David's son, Adonijah, decided of his own accord that he wanted to be the next king. And so he essentially just tries to steal the crown. He aligns himself with a powerful military leader, an influential priest, and they meet together and they have this private coronation. And he is, you know, crowned as the king in this, in this little private ceremony. But the problem with that was King David had already appointed his son Solomon as his successor. And, and more importantly, God himself had promised that David's royal dynasty would continue through Solomon. So the question in the land, who is the true king? Who's the true king? Is it Adonijah? Is it Solomon? What's going on here? So it's at this point we we find in the story in 1 Kings 1 that the queen Bathsheba, she tells King David about about her other son's plans, Adonijah, and prompts David to hurry up the process of crowning Solomon. And so he gets together a prophet and a priest and he brings this advisor along and they go to anoint Solomon. But before they poured oil on Solomon's head, they placed Solomon on a mule. They placed him on a mule which rode into Jerusalem as the crowds lined the streets and shouted, Long live King Solomon! And we read there... All the people went up after him, playing on pipes, rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. You see the parallel here of what's happening with Jesus. He's making a statement, I am the true Davidic king. Jesus is a humble king, but he is also a powerful king, an authoritative king, who rides into Jerusalem confidently. And this is exactly the kind of king that we need. We need this paradoxical king. We need a king who is humble, who stoops low to come to us. And we need a king of power and might and glory to defeat our enemies and defend us against all that would harm us. Jesus is the true king. And anyone or anything else that tries to supplant his supremacy in your life is a phony. And that's why I love Jesus' confidence here. He knows who he is. And the opinions of the crowds and later the Pharisees, religious leaders, those opinions are irrelevant. Jesus says by riding into the city in this way, I am the king. Deal with it. This is why I love Tim Keller. He famously put it this way. When Jesus comes to any city or any body, he says, crown me or kill me. Nothing in the middle. You and I are confronted this morning with the kingship of Jesus. He's the humble king who draws near. He's the powerful, glorious king who sovereignly reigns. Jesus is the compassionate conqueror. He is the meek and majestic king. He owns everything and yet humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. What will we do with this king? But that's not the only paradox we see here. We see another one. We see paradoxical purpose in this passage. And that forces us to ask, why is Jesus coming to Jerusalem in the first place? Why? Why is this scene so important? And I want to show you. I don't want you to rely on your previous knowledge. Back up to Matthew 20. So just look, glance over Matthew 20 and look at verses 17 through 19. And in this scene, Jesus is predicting his death. He's predicting his death now for the third time. He's done this three times, which you know highlights the confusion and, and uh, a misunderstanding that his disciples had and those who heard him teach had. But he's predicting his death for a third time. Matthew, he comments on this scene. He says, "And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them, "See?" We are going up to Jerusalem. And and I love how Matthew puts this. It's almost as if he's, he's letting us in on the scene. We can see it with our own eyes. Jesus with his disciples, it's almost like he's pointing. See? Jerusalem is ahead. See? We're going into the city of Jerusalem. In all of their journeying, and in the midst of all of his teaching and healing and all of the miracles, Jesus was all along slowly but surely making his way to Jerusalem, something awaited him there. And it was his ultimate destination the whole time throughout his ministry. And as Jesus was walking with his disciples on the way to the city, he shares what the city holds for him. Pay attention to it, as the disciples no doubt would have. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man Will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. And I guarantee you the reason that the resurrection was such a surprise to them, even though he had told them he was going to be raised three times over, is because they could not get over the confusion in their minds that Jesus said he's going to Jerusalem to die how hung up they would have been on that. They got no problem going to Jerusalem. They're familiar with the scriptures. We're going to Jerusalem because he's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives and he's going to conquer the Romans. And he's going to take David's throne back. He's going to reign forever. And he says, see, there's Jerusalem. I'm going to die. It's a paradox. Because Jesus has just told them he has clearly entered Jerusalem to die. But the paradox comes in because the disciples are partly right, and the crowds are partly right, in that Jesus has also come to save. The crowds, they, they hail Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah with their cries of Hosanna, Hosanna And the events of Matthew 21, it sets off a chain of events that would only lead to the death of Jesus. The authorities object to the praise of Jesus later in verses 15 and 16. And that sets off arguments between Jesus and Israel's powers in verses 23 through 46. And so once Jesus crossed the Mount of Olives and entered the city gates, his death was certain, but... Before the crowds flock around Jesus to praise him, Matthew adds this really specific geographical detail in verse 1 that he really didn't have to include. It's not like he was really concerned that we knew the exact spot he was in other than to make a very important point. This is what he says in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. You see, when we know from chapter 20 that Jesus is coming from Jericho, Is coming from Jericho, and the villages of Bethany and Bethpage, they are the first permanent villages that you would encounter on the way to Jerusalem. So in part, he's just telling them, hey, this is the way they're going. But by mentioning the Mount of Olives, Matthew is likely pointing us back to another passage in Zechariah. And we can be confident with this because he already is quoting Zechariah here, so that context is in his mind. Jesus crossing the Mount of Olives points back to Zechariah fourteen three through 4 If you're not familiar with that, it, it reads like this. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. That lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Jesus is at least in part fulfilling this prophecy. He is God in the flesh. His feet stood on the Mount of Olives as he's about to make his way into the city. And, and the, the beautiful imagery of the mountain splitting in two, giving reference back to what? What does that make you think of? Splitting in two. The Red Sea. The Red Sea splitting in two, which was for the purpose of what? Deliverance. Salvation. So this imagery of Jesus crossing the Mount of Olives to go and liberate his people and then bring them back through the mountain, which would be split in two. It's pictures and imagery of, of salvation, deliverance, and a new exodus that's, that's happening here. Salvation is definitely on Matthew's mind. That's why he quotes again from Zechariah 9 say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. And what is he coming to do? He is coming to save you. And so it's clear Jesus has come to Jerusalem, not just to die, but to save. But what do we do with this paradox? He's come to rescue his people from their enemies, and he's come to die. Which is it? How do we resolve this parent? It's a real problem. We know it's a problem because in Matthew 20, Jesus heals two blind men. And, And those two blind men in Matthew 20, he heals them after they confess that he is the son of David. And that's when things really start to pick up with the crowds. That's when they really start to follow him closely. Because he's been identified as the son of David and then he does a miracle by healing these men. And they believe He is the Messiah, prophesied from Zechariah and Isaiah and other places in the scriptures. And that's why they give up their cloaks. You know the significance of that? Most of those people have one cloak. One cloak. Tossing it on the ground. Just tossing it on the ground. It's it's just complete devotion, complete allegiance, because they know that Jesus is the Savior King who has come to deliver them. And that's why they praised him with palm branches. Which represented peace, the peace the Messiah would bring. But when Jesus was arrested, and then flogged, and then mocked, and then put on trial, and then pronounced guilty, and then sentenced to death, and then crucified, their hope was gone. We see the paradox in the crowd. Their praises ceased. Their joy replaced with sorrow. For them, either Jesus could save or he could die, but not both. Now what they didn't realize, what they didn't realize was that the only way Jesus could save them was by dying. This is the paradox of the gospel. The only way that Jesus can save you from your sin is by dying in your place. In coming to save as Messiah and reign as king, Jesus must die. In order to do what the crowds most desperately hoped he would do, Jesus had to do what the crowds most definitely never expected he would do. Their greatest need wasn't to be rescued from the present tyranny of Rome. Their greatest need was to be rescued from the tyranny of sin and death. And those enemies are conquered when Jesus stands in our place and suffers the death that we deserve. And bears our sin on his shoulders. And bears the full wrath of God against sin. So that all who come to faith in Jesus are able to say there is no condemnation for me now. Jesus rode into Jerusalem to die for his people and to save them. He's a different kind of king, a new kind of king. Most kings, they send others to die for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus is a king who was sent by God the Father to die himself for his people, to rescue them. Jesus is a king who sacrificed for his people, suffered for his people. Willingly laid down his life for the sake of his people. He's a king who conquers his enemies by giving up his life. This king wins by losing. He kills death by dying. He defeats sin by being defeated. This is where we see that Jesus established his kingdom from a cross. The cross was his throne. Sinclair Ferguson, he put it this way. Jesus had come to take his throne. But he had committed himself to begin his reign from a cross. His coronation was on a cross, his throne made of thorns, or his uh, his, uh, crown made of thorns. The one who is expected to crush Rome is crushed by God's wrath. The one expected to reign through powerful political and religious overthrow will reign through unimaginable physical and spiritual suffering and death. Jesus brings his people far more than we could ever ask or hope The crowds wanted political liberation. Jesus brings spiritual liberation. The crowds wanted a nation of their own. Jesus brings to all nations a kingdom that will never end. This Palm Sunday, remember that Jesus has come to do for you more than you could ever hope or dream. He has come to rescue you from those who would do you harm, sure. He has come to rescue you from a world full of sin, evil, and suffering, sure. But even more than that, his authority and his power and his reign and his humility, it goes deeper. He has come to set you free from sin's grip on your life. This is why he came to Jerusalem. He has come to deliver you from the sting of death. He has come to stand in your place, face the judgment you deserve. He has come to bear God's wrath. And in dying for you, Jesus has done everything that is necessary for you to truly and fully and forever live. Look no further than this king who has come to die and save. There's one more thing we see here. One more paradox. And it's, it's in the crowds themselves. The paradoxical praise of the king is what we see here. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Um, a lot of Bible teachers ask questions like this, and I'm going to join them in asking you, where are you in this story? Where are you in this story? Where, where do you find yourself? And a lot of people, you know, you read the Bible, and especially narrative this is this is where you're prone to do it when you read a story and you try to locate yourself in the story well I see myself in David I I, I see myself in him I see myself in the Pharisees or I see myself in the crowds now we're going to practice something okay Um, I'm going to ask you where are you in this story and all God's people said nowhere right? Is that what what you would have said? Nowhere. You are nowhere in this story. I'm, I'm sorry. I built you up, brought you down. You're not in this story. This story is not about you. In our culture, it may be a good thing to say out loud from time to time, you know what? This actually is not about me. It has nothing to do with me. I'm not a part of this. This story has nothing to do with you whatsoever. The gospel writers are telling the story of Jesus. It's about him. It's not about the crowds. It's not, and it's certainly not about you or me. However, I do think, from time to time, we can appropriately identify with different elements of biblical narrative. And this time, I want to encourage you to identify with the crowds, because I think if you do, it can reveal idolatry in our hearts. And it can help reprogram them to worship Jesus. So, okay, at least since the time of King David, I want you to track with me. The people of Israel had been longing and waiting for a figure that they called the Messiah to come and rescue them from their enemies and rescue them from sin and to reign on David's throne forever. And they desperately wanted Jesus to be this figure. And that's that's well and good. And they had reason to believe that he was because he actually was. But the problem was they had a particular concept of the Messiah. They believed and they wanted the Messiah to set them free from Rome immediately to overthrow their oppressors immediately and to set up his reign on earth immediately and physically and politically and religiously. And that's why they praised Jesus with shouts of Hosanna. That's why they praised him because they thought he was going to do that specific thing for them. You have to identify with them. They are praising Jesus. Is that good? Yeah, that's good. He deserves to be praised. You should shout Hosanna. He's come to save us. But they're praising him because they think that he's coming to do a really specific thing for them. And then when that thing doesn't happen, their praises diminish. And it's probably not fair to say these same crowds that were shouting Hosanna were shouting crucify him. We don't know that. That just sounds good. That preaches, but it's not. It may not be true. So we don't know if that was the case or not. But definitely their praises ceased when Jesus died. It's not like they were getting around being like, oh, yeah, Get ready. Yeah right. We knew, we knew the Messiah would come and suffer and die and it's all just getting started. No, their hopes were dashed against the rocks. Jesus did not do what they thought that he had come to do and so they were done with him. The crowd praised Jesus for who they wanted him to be, not for who he actually was. If you can't relate to that, you probably haven't thought about it too much. This is the paradox of their praise. It's both right and wrong. They, pri- they praise the right person for the wrong reasons. The praise was appropriate. It was just misguided. How easily we can find ourselves in this place. It's possible for us to praise Jesus and love Jesus for who we think he is or for who we want him to be or because we think he's going to do a specific thing for us. Here's, here's some clues if, if you're creeping into this thinking. If Jesus is always on your side, he's always on my side. If Jesus never confronts you, if he never convicts you, if you don't read one single thing in the Bible about Jesus or his expectations for your life and say, man, I, really, I don't know about that. I, I don't like that. That's never your experience. And it's always, yep, yep, I, that's exactly what I want him to be. If Jesus, in your perception of him, sounds like you, looks like you, acts like you, thinks like you, lives like you, then the Jesus you worship may be less the real Jesus and more a God of your own making. You're making Jesus out of, in your image, instead of you being made into his image. In our praise of Jesus, we must make sure we're praising the real Jesus It's an important question to ask ourselves, do our conceptions and our perception of Jesus align with the reality of Jesus? Now we are obviously familiar, some people outside the church, they think of Jesus by and large as an impressive historical figure, they applaud him for his wisdom, character, teaching, marvel at his miracles, that's kind of cool, but that's it. People inside the church. How are we prone to think of Jesus? Maybe just primarily as Savior. He died for the forgiveness of our sins. And we confess it every week, gladly. And as we should. While it's true that Jesus saves, if we're not careful, we can start thinking of Jesus as just a little bit better than a get-out-of-hell-free card. I mean, more than that, but maybe just a little bit our perception gets off. The people of Israel, they were not waiting for a wise teacher. They were not waiting for an impressive leader. They weren't even just waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for a king, a true king, to come and take his throne, to lead them with power and righteousness, to bring peace and healing to the land. Their hope was all correct on paper. They just wanted it to happen in a specific way. Do you ever approach the Lord like this? Where you want and expect him to act in your life in a specific way and as long as he is doing what you say or according to your wishes then everything is good and you continue to praise him with shouts of hosanna who is the king in that scenario we don't need a wise teacher to show us how to live because we can still find plenty of ways to mess our lives up and we don't just need someone to come and take us away from our worst enemies like sin and death we need a valiant king a conqueror to come with compassion and might and overcome all that overwhelms us i want to encourage you this holy week i want to encourage you to think deeply and often about the person and work of jesus meditate and marvel On the paradox of his presence in the city of Jerusalem as he's going about his business. His humility and his glory. Meditate and marvel on the paradox of his purpose for being in Jerusalem. That Jesus has come to suffer and die. And by suffering and dying he has come to save you from sin and death. And then finally, meditate and examine your own hearts, the paradoxical nature of your own heart toward Jesus. And identify, is my worship toward the real Jesus that I find on the pages of Scripture that walked the city streets of Jerusalem heading toward a cross? Or is my Jesus something that I've created myself, an idol of my own making? Jesus has come as a humble and glorious king to save us from our sins. Let's praise this compassionate conqueror.